When I was running masterclasses for gin, I, I really just kind of felt at home and felt like it was something I wanted to do. I wanted to share my passion for spirits and cocktails and the history of gin with people while showing them a good time and serving up delicious gin. People often tell me that I've got a great job, and I do. Food writer, restaurant critic, it's true. I just eat all the time. But what about gin communicator? That sounds like a very good job title as well. Today, we are talking to Leon Dalloway. He's a gin educator, gin communicator, a founder of Gin Journey, which leads gin tours in the UK and Sydney and is soon to pop up in Melbourne. Leon, welcome to Dirty Linen. Thank you so much for having me on and what a lovely introduction. Well, it's true. I mean, gin is such a good drink and you are all about it. Um, Tell us, let's start at Gin Journey. Tell us what you're up to with that. Yeah, so Gin Journey's been running almost 10 years. It's actually our 10th birthday on Saturday. So it's time to celebrate, which is good. Uh, We started way back in 2013 as as basically a, a, a kind of posh bar crawl where you visit distilleries and fancy bars. I come from bartending background and was a brand ambassador for various gin gin companies, then started working at, at distilleries in London, because as I'm sure you can tell from my UK accent, I'm from the UK, um, and kind of wanted to blend all these things together with gin was having a massive boom at the time in the UK, still is now. Um, and I come from a family of, of teachers, actually. And uh, when I was running masterclasses for gin, I, I really just kind of felt at home and felt like it was something I wanted to do. I wanted to share my passion for spirits and cocktails and the history of gin with people while showing them a good time and serving up delicious gin. So that's kind of where, where it started. And then, yeah, around five years ago, Landed in Australia, um, wasn't really planned, but I'm here. And uh, it was also the perfect time to be in Oz to do what I do as well. So work nicely. But yeah, that's really amazing. Um, gosh, I've got about 10 questions in my mind, but I reckon let's go back to absolute basics. Like imagine that I just landed here from outer space and I didn't know what gin was. How would you explain it to me? Okay, well, first of all, welcome to our world, our planet. Um, I hope you come in (laughs) peace. Thank you. I do. I definitely Um, do. (laughs) Yeah, I was just about to watch Independence Day last night, so it's perfect timing. Um, But anyway, um, so gin is the spirit. Um, That's very important. It's got to be high strength. There's only really two rules that you must abide by when you're making a gin. Um, Let's go with the first one because, yeah, it's got to be a spirit. It's got to be a high strength spirit. So to be a gin... You need to be at least 37.5% alcohol by volume. Any less than that, you can't be called a gin. Where we fall into that category is like gin liqueurs. Basically, with the renaissance and the boom of gin recently, there is a bandwagon that people want to jump on and, you know, maybe make a product which isn't as high quality, which cut corners. And by doing that, you could drop the alcohol percentage. So you want to make sure it's strong. 37.5% or above is where we sit at. And then the other um, rule you must abide by is one of the key botanicals. So you have to have juniper. So juniper is the star of the show. That's the lead singer in the band. It's the rock star. Um, But gin as a spirit 
basically ties in various different botanicals. So it all comes from the British Empire spreading around the world, colonizing these you know, far-flung lands, finding their spices, their herbs, their citrus, bringing them back to London, you know, the ships coming down the Thames and then finding a way of how to preserve all these exotic botanicals. And you can preserve in alcohol. So if you preserve when, through distillation, you're going to preserve all these exotic flavours which you wouldn't be able to preserve um, and make them last if you didn't have distillation or you're making a syrup or something like that. So it's actually like um, a spirit that's got this great, like wild, tumultuous history um, that's now come full circle into into the the modern world with with gins being localized by botanicals which are just down the road from them, which is where Aussie gins have become so great. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, I'm really enjoying this planet. Um, so. When did was gin first spoken of? Like, when do we first find it in history? So, do you know what? I think I have the year. Um, Seventeen fourteen was the first time the word gin was used in a book. It was a book called The Fable of the Bees by a guy called Bernard Mandeville. And at the time, gin was actually uh, a lower class drink. It had become the spirit in the early seventeen hundreds from like a. Basically, the, the history of spirits always goes hand in hand with regula- regulatory um, rules, legislation. So, you know, when the tax has been um, softened a little bit, spirits become more popular and so on. And there was a king in England at the time called William III, and he passed the legislation, which basically meant distillation was open season. You didn't have to, um, there were no rules, no regulations, and most importantly, no taxation. He did this because the water that was being drank at the time um, down in the local wells in London was bad for you, full of cholera. But when you distill, you kill germs. So he said, well, why don't I let everyone to distill and it'll create a healthier society? Of course, it didn't. People were just getting drunk all the time. And this basically created the spirit known as gin. It had come from the Dutch spirit known as Geneva, um, gin a lot simpler to say, three letters, one syllable, um, and it was made everywhere, but it was made to very poor quality. So people were getting addicted to this spirit. It caused a bit of an epidemic. Um, So that is really when gin was first referenced in a book and also when it hit the mainstream. And it wasn't until like the mid-1700s that gin finally kind of changed. In 1751, that's what I always call the watershed for gin. Before that, gin was bad. Post-1751, there was new legislation, there was rules, there was new equipment, and gin got better, got classier, and therefore became the spirit that we know and love today. Wow. And so what are some other like key moments along the the path of gin through the ages? So you have got 1751 onwards, um, like the next hundred years I see it's a time of like the brands that we know today being born, like, you know, your Gilbys and your Tanqueray, your Gordons, all of that. Um, the next hundred years was a, like a great time for exporting gin um the u.s became a massive player in in buying gin they were massive anglophiles so they love like you know the tradition and the history that came with these products like for an 
example, Beef Eater was like this, this gin which put a Beef Eater on the front of the bottle. You don't get more like London, more English than, than someone who's guarding the Tower of London. So that became a super popular um, gin over in the States. And and also, like, you know, moving into like the early 1900s, it was a great time for, for cocktails over in the States. So gin was quite often used as, as one of the spirit, like the popular spirit bases for cocktails. And that's why these days you have so many great classic cocktails which use gin as a base, like the Martini, the Negroni, the Martinez is one of my favorites and kind of like helped that popularity in gin in the early 1900s. Second World War comes along and, you know, a lot of the distilleries had to create um, spirits to aid the war effort after the second world war there wasn't really a bounce back for these british distilleries making gin you know later in the 1900s like 70s 80s vodka became really really popular in in western markets over here in oz in the states in the uk you know brands like stolichnaya smirnoff came with massive marketing budgets and really kind of that's when marketing came into influencing people's buying trends so you know, gin has really had its bounce back in like the last 20, 25 years. In 2001, Hendrix was released. Um, everyone's quite surprised by that. They think Hendrix has been around forever, but they actually had a really clever marketing campaign, you know, apothecary style bottle with a, with a, with a cool vintage label, a bit of cucumber, a bit of rose, and all, all of a sudden gave gin a new kind of aesthetic and it became kind of cool and interesting again um so you had that starting over in the uk and australia um had a bit of a bounce back in like in the last 10 years now oz has got a really interesting gin history the first gin distilleries were like way back in 1820 then there was like this colonial um distillation ban um and the only real notable distillery that that kind of broke through that was Bundaberg. Bundaberg kind of monopolized the market um, and made sure that if you wanted to distill, you had to, you know, invest a lot of money to buy your still. So nobody really saw it as like a viable business for, for you know, to make an Australian gin or whiskey. And it wasn't until 97 that the legislation was changed, which was uh, owed a lot to a distillery down in Tasmania called Lark, who you may have heard of. Um, they make great whiskey um, and they, they changed legislation. And then from that, we've had a, a, a bounce from the gin, which in the last 10 years has been ma massively helped by brands like Four Pillars and Never Never and have taken gin and Australian gin with, to the world, which is super exciting to see. Wow. It's so interesting that the legislative um, framework has such an influence. I guess I guess it's really obvious when you think about it, but I suppose if I think about, if, you know, if I think about gin, I think it's, yeah, it's obviously had a comeback, but I feel like it's just some kind of random trend. But uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting that there's actually um, some, some solid facts behind it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think it's always a bit of a perfect storm with something like this. You need a few things to go in its favour. And yeah, number one, it start like the timeline starts with that legislation. So pre-97, I believe um, that if you wanted to distill in Australia, your still, which is what you make spirits in, um, 
You take your raw ingredients, which is a lower ABV, you know, beer or whiskey, uh, sorry, beer or wine, and you distill it into a spirit. Now, your still needs to be, before 97, needed to be at least 2,500 litres big. Now, I don't know if I've got these numbers exactly right, um, so I don't want anyone uh, DMing me saying, hey, it was actually uh, 2,700, but you get the picture. You had to buy a really big still, uh, which means you have to invest a lot in buying the still, then you have to invest a lot in filling the steel with alcohol. If you make a mistake, you've gone bankrupt already. So to change that legislation, you know, you need an MP that's on your side, that sees a, a future. You need a solid business plan that you can then, you know, put to the people who change the legislation. And then finally, you need the, it to be passed through Parliament. So that's what um, we had in Australia in 97 with the Lark family. And then Aussie whiskey um, was starting to be made. It was still a very new market. Um, Tasmania was massive in pushing that forward. There's loads of whiskey distilleries down there. Um, Sullivan's Cove go and win best whiskey in the world, which massively put Aussie whiskey on the map. Um, but then it wasn't until like 2007 that Aussie gins really started. And it was um, distillery in, in South Australia called Kangaroo Island Spirits that were uh, it's the brother of the Lark family. So they moved to KI. KI is like a mini Tasmania. If you've not been there, it's awesome. Um, and they started making gin. And when they were doing that, they started using Aussie native botanicals. So what we now know for gin distillation is that Australia's got this incredible, unique ecosystem. You know, what the Aboriginal people have known for tens of thousands of years. Now, you take some of these botanicals where nowhere else in the world has, you chuck them in a still and, wow, they taste amazing. So the first one we believe to be used was Tasmanian pepperberry. Um, and then distillery started using this thing called lemon myrtle, which was like, you know, blew everyone's mind because lemon myrtle is this leaf which, you know, you may have heard of in like body wash and soap and, you know, I have you know, a little pot in my kitchen right now because i got lemon myrtle just down the road and I make cups of tea out of it because it's, you know, I'm an English person. I love my cups of tea, but this is like an Aussie native tea that I can pick from just down the road. Now, you chuck the lemon myrtle in the still. Apparently, it's got six more, six times more lemony than a lemon, so it's more lemony than a lemon. Chuck it in a still and it absolutely turns into the most beautiful flavour. So all these Aussie gins were making these Aussie products with native Aussie botanicals and when the world saw that you know they were they were on notice that australia was making these amazing gins with native botanicals that nowhere else in the world could use so it really kind of put aussie gin on the map from the off yeah i mean it's it's when it's about botanicals, of course, it makes sense to make Australian gin with those those native ingredients. But then it just makes me think, why juniper? Like, it, and I know that juniper is a defining characteristic of gin. But I mean, does what do you think of that? Like, isn't there something a little bit nonsensical about celebrating the native botanicals but still needing to put juniper in it? Well, yeah, so you, juniper just has to be there so it, to be called a gin because if, as soon as you drop the juniper, it ain't gin anymore. So the thing is with that is that gin is, um, you know, gin has the got the marketability. As soon as you call it like uh, an Aussie native spirit, you know, it's going to be hard to go to the trade show and sell it or put it on a billboard and sell it, you know. Gin's got that 
brand equity as a spirit. So, you know, people know that it goes well with tonic and, you know, people are used to that. As soon as you, yeah, you could do an Aussie native spirit and you could make it taste amazing. You might have to call it like an Aussie vodka. Um, but right now, because gin's so hot, people want to call it a gin, you know. Uh, but also, juniper tastes bloody amazing. Um, so um, it was actually originally used. Um, the reason being, it, it works really well with masking bad flavor. So when alcohol was really bad, chuck some juniper in there and you could kind of cover it up, mask it a little bit. But um, these days, you know, the juniper is such quite high quality and, and all the drinks that are created um, that use gin are, are, have been, you know, been molded around that spirit so you're going to go back to that negroni that martini that gnt use the gin and it's it's going to sit well if it's a good gin so lean you mentioned your background as bartender and brand ambassador but how did you um get caught up in this world um yeah i it's one of those like i don't think any careers advisor ever told you to go into the uh, bartending um, world you know or uh, or told me to go into alcohol you know i didn't sit down in in when i was 16 and think you know i'm going to be in hospitality um it was one of those where you know it was a job that i fell into it was a bit of extra money and i enjoyed it and i was i ended up being you know okay at it and uh I come from a family of teachers. My dad was a teacher. My my mum was a teacher, stepmom, and I always thought, oh, maybe I'll be a teacher. You know, I think I'll I'll do an all right job. But my dad was kind of at the end of his, um, you know, at the end of his career, and he was he didn't really enjoy the teaching industry anymore. And I think he probably saw similarities in me and him, and from from his you know career, and he, he said just don't be a teacher, Leon. And I was like, oh, do you know what? I think I'd make a good teacher, Dad, so why not? So basically when um, I'd, you know, done my years of bartending, I was entering quite a lot of, you know, cocktail competitions, doing quite well, enjoyed the presenting side. And then when I was teaching people about gin, it kind of clicked. I went, well, what I can do is I can teach people about gin and charge them for it at the same time. So that's how I kind of fell into the the running the masterclasses and whatnot. And then, yeah, one day it all, all kind of came together and I was in London at the perfect time. It all made sense that what what my my plan that I had was, was I believe, was, was kind of foolproof. Um, I called it the Time Out Society where, you know, in London at the time, everyone was just wanted to be out all the time doing the next cool thing. And, and we got a really, you know, we got a great review from The Guardian on like, I think it was the second or third gin journey I ever did. And from that, that really was how what we, we based our our business off that that one review. We had people coming to our website for about three years from that one review. So kind of it was it was really the the moment where it all changed. It was like for my, my life it was like before that garden review and after it. And uh, and that's when what, what we based the what the success of the business was based off. Wow, that's really, that's quite a story. And so, I mean, how has it been building the business in Australia? Oh, it's been amazing. It's been uh, hard because, you know, I had my visa um, issues weren't uh, so straightforward. Um, yeah, so that was, that's been difficult. I'm still going through that, but hopefully not too much longer. Um, also, I, like everyone else, had to contend with COVID um, and, you know, the lockdowns, but but the great thing 
is on a positive note is that the market here is quite similar to the UK market in that, um, you know, people do like their spirits. Um, you know, people like to go out and, and, and learn and, and uh, kind of understand what they're drinking. But also landing in Sydney when I did, like the, the distillery scene here and the gin scene is could be one of the best in the world. Don't let my London friends and family um, let them hear me say that, but it, it's up there contending with London. You've got, you've got, you know, so many distilleries just around in various areas. Like the Inner West is absolutely booming in Sydney um, for for breweries and distilleries. And you know, you know, every person who I've told I'm doing it in Sydney also goes well. You got to launch in Melbourne, and it was kind of always a no-brainer um, to to get over to Melbourne. I was just biding my time, and then. Um, luckily, uh, an old industry friend of mine, Jane Ryan, who's running the Melbourne Cocktail Festival, um, which is in Melbourne in September. Um, 40 bars taking place, by the way, with a $15 cocktail. Just get that plug in there for them. Um, she said, why don't we do Gin Journey in Melbourne for the Cocktail Festival? And I was like, perfect timing. It all kind of, you know, I was waiting for that moment that um, I wanted to launch in Melbourne and, and it was just the, the right time. And then here we go. Um, and I, I think it's going to be, you know, the people of Melbourne are going to love it. And it's, yeah, the distillery scene there is, is up there with, with anywhere in the world as well. Yeah, so great. Yeah, Melbourne Cocktail Festival, fourth year, coming back on September 18 to 24. So we're happy to give them a plug. It is a great festival and it's great to celebrate Melbourne bars. Um, I mean, when you go around, as you say, like there are so many places to choose from, you know, whether it's London or Sydney or Melbourne, how do you, how do you choose the places to, to take people? So we, yeah, we base it around the route, like always try and get a distillery in there first. So work, work, kind of get the distillery in there and then work back from there. Um, so with the route, you, you know, you have a different venue on the hour, every hour. Um, so I, I get my like aces in places, if you will, get that distillery, work out what time works for them best. And then just try and get really great bars surrounding that. So with the Sydney tour, we actually have three to four distilleries on it at the minute, which is amazing. We've never had that density of, of distilleries. We, we, we get a minibus over here for the Melbourne tour. It's actually going to be a, a bit of a walking tour. So a little bit tighter just in one area. And then we just try and, yeah, you know, I'm hospitality through and through. I like taking people to awesome bars. I've always liked taking my mates to, you know, my favorite bars. And it's just about getting a place of interest on the route that kind of makes sense and, and has great service and great cocktails and also something we can just help tell a story. So just more stuff we can talk about, um, you know, if they've got an interesting cocktail program or an interesting historical link, we, we'll get them on there and, and make it work. Mm, love it. Well, let's talk a bit about gin drinks because one of the things that I don't know. I don't know. If, I don't know if you call it a struggle. That might be overstating it. But when we've got these beautiful flavors in the gin, and you do want to taste those botanicals, I struggle to mix it with a tonic um, or you know a, a, a sort of a, a vermouth that has a lot of competing flavors as well. Like, how do you approach? Um, drinking this gin when you know in that balance between appreciation but yeah not wanting to just you know do shots of gin all the time 
Yeah, I think it's uh, good, interesting question. Um, and a, a question I hear a lot surrounding gin. I, you know, on the tours quite a bit, people are like, oh, you know, how do I, how would I mix this? And they get a little bit worried about, you know, if I'm going to do it wrong. Um, personally, I think one part gin to two parts tonic does the job, you know, no more than that. Else you're, yeah, you are going to, um, overpower the gin so you're going to get quite a strong gnt there but but i don't think you want to you know make it any bigger proportion of tonic than that else you know you're not going to get the flavors of the gin there but i also think you know have a little taste of that gin before you do anything else so if you've got a gin at home or even you know if you're in the bar, you know, like you would a wine, or could I have a little try of it? Ask, ask the bartender, oh, would you mind if I have a tiny little taste of that gin? Hopefully, uh, you know, they'd be happy to to give you a try and then you can, you know, work back from there. Have a little think. I always, I like to run through a tasting with, with my guests to, uh, and not just, you know, do a bit of a tutor tasting where, you know, think about the juniper first, think about the citrus, then the spice and the herbs and, and, and get in your mind what, what you're getting from this gin. And then you can, you know, get creative. Put your chef's hat on and say, well, I'd like to put tr- pair this gin with that tonic and, and this garnish. And I always, if you're at home doing it, find what's close to you. Like I live in Bondi and I'm very lucky that locally we've got, you know, you walk around and you can find, you know, herbs and spices kind of all around the area. So I always think... Find a rosemary bush that's just down the road. You know, you don't have to go to the shop, waste the plastic, spend some money, um, you know, find some lemon myrtle, grab some of that. And uh, and then, you know, if you've got friends around, you, you can tell them that you've gone and foraged it yourself. And, uh, you know, you might sound a little bit wanky, but they might also be a bit impressed as well. So, Leon, you mentioned that you're a big fan of the Martinez. Can you tell us why you love it and how we would make a good one ourselves? Yeah, the Martinez was actually, you know, I need to get back to it. It was my like end of tour drink for for so long. Um, I used to have one at the end of every gin journey um, because it's got a little bit of a, you know, I do have a bit of a sweet tooth. I love my savoury cocktails as well. So um, I'll do Martinez first, but I'm also a massive fan of the Gibson. Um, I love anything pickled um, and obviously like pickling and fermenting is going through, you know, such a massive uh, buzz period at the minute. But the Martinez is basically like a gin Manhattan. Um, so two parts gin, one part sweet vermouth, a dash of maraschino liqueur. And then I like, you can do it with an orange zest over the top, but I like it with a Luxardo maraschino cherry because I like that little treat at the end of the drink. Because, you know, when you're having a drink, when you're having a cocktail like that, you are treating yourself. So why not have a little treat at the end of the treat, if you know what I mean? So take that gin, Sweet vermouth, maraschino, maybe a dash of orange bitters if you uh, if you want to balance it out with the, the maraschino and then stir it down. Keep on tasting. Make sure you've got a coupette or a Nicanora or a martini glass in the freezer, in the fridge, um, ice cold. Um, keep tasting while you're stirring. Single strain um, and then boom, pop that garnish in there. And I am feeling thirsty now. I've done that. <laughs> so I am too. That sounds that sounds so good, like so sophisticated, and um, yeah, like the way you spoke about it, it's like I feel like I deserve that drink too. It's like <laughs> love it. 
Um, Leon, can you imagine doing this forever? Like, is, is are you gin journeying for life? Yeah, I, I can. Um, I also do now have my own gin as well. So it's taken a while. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm involved in a gin called Bondi Gin Co. Um, our Australian dry is out right now. You can only really get it online. So I've also got that as as, as my other project. But, but yeah, um, as I said, the the Gin Journey UK is coming up to its 10th year um, this weekend. We're having our 10th birthday. And, um, you know, I love doing it. I love sharing the education. Um, and it's kind of, it's yeah, it's, it's been the last 10 years of my life. It's, uh, you know, been a, been a great part of my life and a, a great business. And now I have it in Australia and, you know, and in the UK. We, we, we've kind of restructured the business in the UK a little bit that, um, it's gone to a bit of a franchise model with people who've worked for the business um, or been, you know, contracted by the business um, for the last like five, six, seven years. Um, and, you know, the way it's taken off in Australia, I definitely want to take it to more cities and take it to the next level. And we'll, we'll, we'll be uh, it's, the great thing is, it you know, pairs perfectly with with my own gin that I can showcase the gin on the on the journey. And luckily, I've got enough. um Credits in the bank with all the brands I work with that they trust. Uh, they trust Gin Journey to be, you know, uh, to be uh, fair to all all, all, all the products. Um, and you know, I work with brands like Four Pillars and Poor Tom's and Never Never for you know over five years now. So have great relationships with with all these great brands that um, are, are happy to support us with with Gin Journey. Mm, so cool. Well, Leon, I love the way that you've um, parlayed an interest in teaching into this very specific, but I guess crowd-pleasing area and taken it international as well. Congratulations. Um, and I'm excited that you're bringing the gin journey to Melbourne. Um, yeah, look forward to checking it out and, and seeing some of our gin um, gin institutions here in a new light with your with your lens on them so yeah sounds fantastic can't wait i think we are on the 20th of september so we're going to do it on the wednesday night so uh if anyone's listening to this and fancies getting along um and yourself included danny um wednesday the 20th i do believe all right beautiful thanks leon appreciate it no worries thank you so much This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.